You're listening to the Companion Gun Dog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer, and uh, it's just me again today. Um, really uh, trying to make an effort to be consistent in putting this thing out as I mentioned in the last podcast. I'm going to give it a really uh, a solid uh, go anyway, at trying to get one of these out every other week. Um, so uh, I did put out a call for, uh, you know, for ideas on uh, on topics you guys might want to hear me discuss or talk about on uh, on future podcast. And thanks for those that wrote in. Uh, today I am going to uh, to talk in in some depth about the use of pin raised birds uh, for training. And so it's a topic that has come up several times and in various other podcasts I've listened to where, uh, where we discuss the importance of wild birds or, you know, how, you know, if you're using pin raised birds, all the problems you can kind of, uh, run into and, and, you know, not to go too deep into it right now. Cause there's a little bit of, uh, for a lack of a better term, I kind of hate these, these kind of podcast buzzwords, but, uh, some housekeeping, I want to get done before I move into that. No, but that's the idea. That's the topic we're going to cover today. Uh, I want to keep it, you know, at least concise. Uh, I don't think it'll run too long. This could be a little shorter episode than normal. If I can stay on track alone, which as we all know is, uh, is my biggest challenge. So, uh, so getting to what I was going to discuss, at least in the housekeeping portion, um, you know, when I started this thing, I talked about, uh, having no desire to monetize it. And honestly, I still really don't have a desire to monetize this thing, but it's looking like with trying to be more consistent with it, um, that I'm going to potentially entertain some advertisers. Uh, there's a little cost to doing this thing. It'd be really great if it would pay for itself. Um, but to be completely honest with you, this summer I've been going through my normal, uh, force program, uh, a lot of retrievers here, got some big dogs, big wire hair. And, uh, my, I've got this old bum shoulder and man, I've just really been struggling with it this summer. And right now, knock on wood, uh, it's in a pretty good place. So it's not bad, but it's really set me to thinking, um, about my future in this business. And I don't want to ever stop training dogs, but there's definitely a shelf life on this career for me. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, well into my forties at this point. And, um, if I can do what I do every day for another 20 years, that'd be great. I don't know if that's possible. Um, but with that in mind, I, I think it would be prudent of me to start considering other revenue streams. And I've struggled immensely with this. I've, I've never, I don't like the idea of the word influencer. Um, it makes me cringe. Uh, but it's also kind of, um, the world we live in today. So it's nice to have an audience to speak to. It's nice to get, you know, relatively consistent feedback to know you're speaking to people and that they're listening. And, and I feel grateful that I've got those of you that are listening today out there, many of you. Are, are listening to this thing every time it comes out. It's not a big audience. It's a small audience, but I do think you guys are pretty well engaged. Um, so if I take on an advertiser, it will be, there's going to be a lot of thought put into it. With that said, 
if I'm going to aim at that, then I've got a pretty short window to do something I've, I've long wanted to do. And I'm going to do a, like a brutally honest review show where I just talk about gear I use, gear I've used in the past, and I want to really dig deep into like good experiences, bad experiences, companies I deal with and companies I don't, and why. Yeah, hopefully I'm not opening myself up to too much liability, but I promise you all my experiences will be uh, will be honest and as you know as truthful as I can possibly be. So I'm going to aim at doing one of those in the next month or two. Um, I'm looking at joining a network of podcasts that'll, you know, hopefully increase my visibility in terms of uh, potential advertisers um, and hopefully a, a larger audience. And so with that said, it's important to try and get this out there. So if you do like this, if it works for you, if you get something out of listening to this podcast, here's something I've never done and I'm about to do it right now and it's super uncomfortable but I'm going to ask you to leave me a review. And uh, if you're going to leave me a review, the one that's going to help, and hopefully you're doing it because you want to help me, is one of those five-star reviews and and write some words about what you get out of this podcast. That would be an immense benefit to me uh, in moving forward. So if you would consider doing that, I would be eternally grateful to you because it's going to help me hopefully take this thing in the direction I'd like to see it go. I do promise that I'm not just going to fill it full of junk. Right. If I don't have something to say, I really don't want to say too much on it. Um, so I'm working hard. Uh, I'm, I'm really putting much more effort into thinking about topics. And with that said, please, you know, I, and some of you may have done this in the past and I haven't hit on those topics yet. Hit me back up. Let me know something you'd like for me to talk about on this show. And I, hopefully at some point I'll get Emily back in here too. She's just covered up with work this summer. Um, she's been wanting to get in here and do one with me and we're going to make it happen at some point. So it's not just going to be me boring you to death. It'll be her directing me as I bore you to death, uh, kind of moving forward. So, so with that, hopefully out of the way, hopefully I've gotten everything I want to say there. Um, I, I definitely will be announcing you know, some things along that line, uh, ways that maybe we can work, um, on a, on a more intimate basis, uh, moving forward. If there's something I can help folks with, uh, I'm going to try and offer some remote learning opportunities. So I'm not exactly sure how that's going to look just yet, but it's, it's something I'm working towards. Uh, I've been doing more writing and, you know, I've just, like I said, you know, I, 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 I see the writing on the wall at this point where my, you know, my mind is in it. My heart is in it. Uh, I don't know how much longer my body is going to sustain this volume of work, uh, and alone. And I still want to be a one man show. That's really important to me. I, I just like the lifestyle of working for myself, not being responsible for putting food on other people's tables. Um, it's enough uh, stress for me as a small business owner to make sure I'm putting food on my own family's table. And, uh, and I, if I'm going to take on an employee, uh, that would be an enormous responsibility and it's not one that I want. So in order to try and, um, you know, have a, a somewhat comfortable lifestyle as a, as a individual out there working for myself, this is how I'm going to plan to try and expand. So, um, so if you, if you have an interest in helping, please, please do so get out there, share this stuff, share my content, leave me a review. That's me 
making that plea as uncomfortable as it is. So thanks for hearing that part. And with all that said, let's get into uh, into the meat of this podcast, which is the power of pin raise birds and training pointers and flushers. So we're going to talk a lot more about pointers um, simply because there's more technical talk to discuss. Uh, and, and we'll get into that in a little bit, a little bit later uh, in the podcast. Um, but just right now, thinking of pointing dogs, uh, I did an episode with stump a little while ago that I, uh, that I titled the power or the importance of wild birds, uh, in developing your gun dog. And I stand by that, you know, but with that said, I understand like me, I live in an area with very low wild bird numbers, just almost non huntable. Um, pardon me. Uh, you can get out there and find some quail, but you're not going to make a bird dog on our quail. You might on a rare occasion, find a grouse up in the mountains, but you're not going to make a bird dog on our population of grouse here. Uh, some people have done it and good on them. You know, they're, they're out there, they're spending a lot of time in the woods and they know where to go. And there's very few places to go, especially on public land in this state to, to run into densities of birds that are going to make your dog want to hunt them and then to understand how to handle them when they're in their presence. And so for many of that, of many of us, that means we're not only training on pin raised birds, but that's what our hunting opportunities are going to be. And so for the sake of just clarity in this, in this podcast, I'm going to talk, when I talk about a dog that's pretty much exclusively used on pin raised birds, whether it be training or hunting in general, I'm going to be talking about a preserved dog. And uh, I'm going to compare those to wild bird dogs, but understand that those can be one in the same. You can have a dog that can handle pen raised birds very well, and that same dog turn around and handle um, a variety of species of wild upland game. And so we're going to talk, you know, at length about what either one of those types of dogs may be, and then what it may take to help our preserved dog become a better wild bird dog or our wild bird dog become a better preserved dog. Because there's a, there's a overlap, but there, there are a lot of conflicts and, and a lot of times, and, um, I know other trainers, uh, other friends out there that have either struggled with this themselves, or they have clients that, that have, you know, struggled with this and, and it, tends to be uh, a bit of a revelation when they may take their dog that has killed it on grouse for years up north somewhere and they finally come down to a preserve down here and the dog's just not doing a good job of handling preserved birds. So so with that said, when I when I'm thinking of a of a preserved dog in particular, it's a dog, it takes a lot of effort starting from the word go to to break a dog out on pen raised birds and to keep them honest for that dog's life on pen raised birds. Once you get them broke, the maintenance is not necessarily tough. It can be challenging, and, and but it, what you can't do is just coast for the rest of the dog's life and expect it to stay broke on pen-raised birds. You're going to get variability in the condition of those birds, no matter you know how good the preserve you go to is or the game farm you get your birds from every once in a while, you're going to get a batch of sick birds. Every once in a while, the weather is just not going to be conducive to keeping them right or to planting them right. The, the, the terrain, the cover, it all plays a role. Um, so, you know, if, if, when we get past kind of the puppy phase and, and even for dogs that I would hope would be 
wild bird dogs for the rest of your life, their life, I can, I see a benefit in starting them on pen raised birds. And I've, I've talked about that in the past plenty. So we don't need to rehash exactly what I might consider my drive building phase of, of training. Um, but you know, it's when we get into that, uh, kind of more, when we start heading towards finished or polished type behavior. So just making your dog staunch, it's hard to get a dog to understand the concept of being staunch. If all I have access to are wild Bob white quail or wild, sorry, or pin raised Bob white quail, um, much less in my opinion, I think that's about as good as it gets for introducing the concept of staunch. If that's what you have access to and you're not using pigeons unless, unless of course you have access to Hungarian partridge, which I do think are a better bird in general for our pointing dogs. Um, but they're, I, I've never found them at a, uh, a price that I would consider feasible to train with on a regular basis. I've never tried to have them recall. Um, they may do that. Well, I, I wouldn't even know. Our other option would be chucker. They do recall really well. I've never had great success with chucker in terms of kind of sitting still and getting to wing in, in the kind of time frame I would like to see them do that. So what I mean is if I'm using chucker, they either tend to run a lot on the ground or they tend to like hold way too long. Um, rarely do I see chucker that are just really spooky and flighty and they hold until the dog gets to within a certain proximity that's not too close. And then they flush and they're gone. Usually when they do get up, if, if you've got hardy, healthy chucker, they do tend to fly pretty hard and far, which is helpful. Um, I, I, and I've, I've, I'm, have not used them enough as a training bird only to know that if I was using them in a recall pin or Johnny house scenario, whether or not that would be the case. A lot of times our Johnny house birds or, or just our quail in general that have been around a recall, they may get up and fly hard the first couple of times we flush them. But then pretty often they start to recognize like just, Hey, hop over to this bush and uh, just get back on the ground Uh, or don't get in the air (laughs) if at all possible. Right. Um, But that being said, good hard flying quail from a good producer. uh, That's, those things are hard to come by, but they're, that's what we're aiming at. So if I'm looking to train on a specific species of pen raised bird, it's for me personally, from a cost perspective, and then like, I'm going to throw a lot of numbers at the dog. So the cost is important, but also the ability to keep more birds. So Bob whites are small. Um, they, they tend to do well enough for us to be enough size to for our, to work our dogs on, but small enough for us, I can keep 25 in a Johnny house. I wouldn't call it comfortably. Um, you know, but I'm expecting to lose a couple and I get down to around 20 in my four by four Johnny house. And that's a sustainable population, uh, with chucker. I've, I've never used them in that Johnny house, but I can't imagine that more than certainly not 10, but I, I would say somewhere between five and 10 could live comfortably in there. And I just don't know how healthy I could keep them in that, in that environment either. They do tend to be super hardy birds. I have a hard time. Like they don't just die and Bob whites do, um, you know, so I do, I tend to keep them in my pigeon loft. They do well. The pigeons do fine with them in there. The chucker do fine with the pigeons in there and they stay alive for a very long time until I'm ready to use them. Uh, 
if I'm keeping them for over a couple of weeks, they're usually going to get pretty weak in their, in their ability to fly. They don't get up and fly around in that loft. Um, and, and I do have like ventilation up top with sunlight. So I would expect them if they were trying to get light, get air and call and stuff like that, they would get up top, but that's not been my experience. They pretty much loaf around on the ground and get weak. Um, they'll get fat, but they're not going to fly really hard after a week or two in, in a, in captivity without being worked, if that makes sense. So, so my, you know, my suggestion is if you're going to rely solely on pin raised birds to get started in this thing, you want the hardest flying spookiest Bob white quail you can get. And that's getting into like making that staunch dog. So making that staunch dog, right. It's just meaning the bird becomes more elusive. Um, if I'm not putting pressure on my dog, what it means to be staunch in my opinion is a dog that will point and hold a bird until it takes to wing. And if I can get there naturally, which a wild bird dog will almost always do unless there's just some wires crossed. If I can get there naturally, it's because I've got a bird that when that dog pressures them too much is going to get up and get out of town. And that dog's going to learn, Hey, if I put too much pressure on this bird, it's leaving. I need to stop and stay here. So I want to get to staunch naturally, if at all possible. I use launchers and pigeons in that phase of training because it gives me the opportunity to control the flush and therefore I can kind of help that dog become staunch naturally more efficiently if I'm using pin raised bob whites even if I'm getting really good ones if one of those birds out of that bash just decides to dance around in front of my dog or to jump in his mouth or to hop five feet when he's flushed the first time um, that's gonna one of those can set you back quite a few reps in training. Uh, and it may set you back indefinitely in training if you can't get back into really strong birds. So my suggestion is to not even try to make my dog naturally staunch on loose bobwhite quail because they're just so unpredictable. And if you don't get consistency, you're going to have a hard time making that dog staunch. Um, beyond, so that's, I guess, you know, kind of the cons. And there's not really a lot of pros to pin raise birds and trying to develop a naturally staunch dog. Once I move those birds into the woods, and this is when we're going to get kind of into planting birds. So I'm, I'm probably getting a little ahead of myself. Let me kind of move forward. So that's, those are considerations and trying to make a dog staunch. The bird is slow to fly. My dog catches that bird on the ground. The next time he's going to get there, what's he going to do? He's going to attempt to catch that bird on the ground because that was reinforced the last time. So there's no reason for him not to. If I get in here and start banging on my dog, now I'm competing with that motivator. I'm, I'm telling that dog that, you know, I don't want you to advance on that bird. But at the same time, I'm telling him that, hey, every time you're in the presence of this bird and you're feeling this heightened state of arousal, there's a good chance that you're going to feel pain. And so I need real clarity of communication in that situation. And that's a real challenge on pin raised birds. Steadiness, training steadiness with pin raised birds. It's easier if we're already beyond the staunch phase, right? Now it's, I don't have to have you with a nose full of bird to let you see one fall out of the sky or to fly away. I can give you a bunch of reps like that. And then we can try to put your nose back in front of that bird and teach you not to chase, but I'm either restraining you immediately or I'm recalling you from chase, like we've talked about in the past. So that they're easier to, 
to, in my opinion, like once you've got the concept of being of pointing and holding into wing, like steadiness training is not that it's not super difficult if you're comfortable going through the process. Um, but getting a dog to that place where they establish point and don't advance on the bird and don't leave with a, a bird when you're dealing in bad flying pin raised birds is really, really challenging. And now you're dealing in where do I put my pressure and how much do I put in there? And when you're talking, when you're a novice, that's a, that's tough. There's a lot of feel involved in that. And it really helps to have experience to lean on. So my suggestion in that regard is if you've got access to wild birds at all, that's a good place to start working on that. Um, you know, if you're going to woe break your dog, that's fine, you know, but don't start woe breaking quote unquote, breaking your dog when they've got a nose full of bird and they got that heightened state of arousal. Uh, that's proofing behaviors, right? So that's when I'm teaching you, Hey, I'm teaching you to stand still. You're not allowed to, to leave when I throw a pigeon 50 yards away from you or, or my, my helper throws a pigeon 50 yards away for you. Or I launch one that you can't smell 50 yards away and slowly bring it closer. Um, now that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to essentially stick you on point and jam you up if you try to leave with that bird. And if I've got a bird that's not helping me, and that's why pigeons are so helpful in this regard in that early phase of training, um, then I'm fighting my dog off of that bird the whole time. And I'm running the risk of ruining his, or, or at least, uh, injuring that dog's relationship with that bird. And I don't want to do that. I want him to feel power over that bird all the time. So kind of, you know, rambled through staunchness and steadiness and why it's tough to do with pin raised birds. If you can do it, if you can make your dog staunch and steady on pin raised birds, you've demonstrated competence. That's, that's not an easy feat. So it takes time to get there and it's harder to make a serviceable dog to take to a hunting preserve and have a good day, in my opinion, than it is to take uh, a, a good bird dog out developing on, on wild birds and have successful days hunting wild birds. And the, and the sole reason is wild birds want to survive. Pin raised birds don't even understand what that means. So keep that in mind as you're out there working on it. Um, I touched on drive building. Um, I, I, I always have a drive building phase with all of my puppies that are coming into their young adulthood. So I'm, again, you know, I don't shy away from letting my dogs do a little chasing and catching and bumping and all those things when they're young, because I need that money in the bank so that when I come in and apply some pressure later in training, I say need, I want that money in the bank so that when I come in and apply that pressure in later training, I'm not injuring that relationship with that bird. I'm make, my dog feels the power over that bird and is willing to endure a little bit of stress that I'm bringing into the equation so that they can access that bird. That's why I have drive building. So a lot of folks disagree with drive building. Um, when you're trying to accomplish things in, in on bad birds, it really helps to have some drive building behind that dog. And also that doesn't give me free reign to come in there and, and make ill-timed corrections. I still want to give clear, clear, precise, effective corrections that are well-timed, um, in order for my dog to begin to understand what's expected of him and how he can still access the things he wants, uh, even if he's not allowed to do so in certain scenarios, if that makes sense. So 
Doing things correctly gets you what you want. Doing things incorrectly will buy you a correction and you're not going to get what you want. So you need to have enough desire to keep playing that game in order to learn to access the thing you want, if that makes sense. So, so, you know, I, I'm not happy with the way the last, say, 15 minutes of that conversation has gone, but hopefully there was, uh, there, it was clear enough to understand what I'm getting at. Training with pin raised birds is tough. So if I'm going to use pin raised birds, I want to talk about how, what I, number one, what kind of bird am I looking for to start with? Um, and then what do I do with them in training? How do I plant them? You know, how, how long before I turn my dog out on him, all those things. Uh, so for me, we've talked about the fact that I'm going to use Bob whites. I'm going to look for a local producer, a game farm that's producing strong, healthy birds. I get them consistently. One thing I really like to see with that, um, flight pins are great. Uh, um, but also like one of the, some of the best birds I get are from a guy that keeps them in really dark houses, but he just keeps them super healthy. So the lights are out in there. He's not, these dog, these birds are not, as far as I know, ever flight conditioned, quote unquote flight conditioned, but they're also never exposed to human beings and they're living in a dark room. So you get, especially that first 24 hours, you've got those birds. They are like flighty. They don't want to be wherever they are. They're overstimulated all the time. And so any little stimulation is going to startle them and they're going to be, that's spooky. And so I want that. So the flight condition birds I get, they tend to be super strong. Um, when I, when I get them from places that have big flight pins, it's also like, what are their feeding schedules? Like, it doesn't matter how hard that bird can fly, how healthy it, it can, how healthy it is and how hard it can fly if it doesn't care enough to get off the ground. And so I would look, I think, I think there's value in the big flight pin outfits. Um, but they can't be in there kicking around those birds all the time. They need to be visiting enough. Those birds need to be spooky. They need to be startled when they come in. If they're running to the guy every time he runs in there to feed them, that's not probably very helpful if they're, you know, so I don't want them staying on the ground. I want them getting away from me. So limited contact with human beings. Um, I don't mind getting them from a dark house as long as I'm liking the birds I'm getting, if that makes sense. So this is different types of breeders and I'm not a, I'm not a bird breeder. i honestly, this, you know, I, I'm kind of speaking on that in an uneducated way. Um, I'm not a propagator, but you know, this is just based on what I've observed over the past several years of doing it this way. Um, so I'm starting with my healthy, hopefully spooky birds. Uh, I usually don't worry about with my training birds that I'm like really trying to develop behaviors in my dogs. I do keep Johnny houses out on the farm. Um, we're making hopefully contact with those a couple of days a week, but they're not the birds that I'm really trying to develop the great behaviors in, in my training field. Those birds, I'm not expecting to recall. I don't care if they recall every time I put one of those birds down, cha-ching, it's four bucks. And I, and that's a, a cost of training, right? Because I want that bird to be strong, healthy, and flighty. And if it's out of my Johnny house all the time, it's not. I can't count on it being that way. Uh, if I'm doing, if I'm beating on them every day, if that makes sense. So if I flush one of those birds, hopefully I can get back on it a few times. I get a lot of like local little liberated coveys around my training field. I get into the woods and train out there a lot, but 
when I turn a quail loose to, to go train on it in my training field, that bird's a goner almost every time. And I expect that. And if I had, and, and it would be smart of me to have some sort of recall set up somewhere else. And they just move those birds out of that scenario. If you're just recalling them and starting them on that over and over and over again, they're going to get weaker, uh, at least in terms of their spookiness, planning them. I don't want to dizzy them to death. If I'm looking, so if I'm thinking of like a training scenario, if I've got a dog and again, I'm not even putting my dog on loose Bob white quail until I'm confident that they understand the concept of staunchness. They don't have to be perfectly staunch, but I'm not putting you down. I'm not putting that bird down for you. If you, if I'm expecting you to just run in there and rip it off the ground and eat it. Right. So I want you to at least show me that you know how to establish point and hopefully that you can handle a little bit of environmental stimulation while you're on point before that bird leaves. And hopefully you're standing until that bird leaves. Once I get there, now I'll go out and plant you some birds. For me, I like to start them in the woods. Not it, there's some, there are some cons to that as well. Mostly those birds are very comfortable moving around on the ground in the woods. In my particular woods, I have good mid-story cover. Uh, I don't have much low ground cover and I've got a lot of overhead. Um, so they tend to move around on the ground a lot, but they will fly. They're also going to see that dog coming as we've discussed in the past, right? So they tend to be more prepared to escape whether or not they're super spooky. Um, they, they have avenues of escape and the dog's normally not going to catch them on the ground. And that's when I'm working on my chase management. So there's that. Once I'm planting them in the bigger field where I'm dealing in grasses, I'm still looking for the lightest cover I can put that bird in that's going to give it good overhead protection. It's going to feel secure enough to stay in position, um, and it's going to conceal it from the dog. It, when, it, when they're in that situation, they're going to be less inclined to just run out on the ground. Uh, unless they're completely stupid and they're the kind of birds that are not, they don't see dog or human as a threat in any way. So for the most part, I'm going to be looking for like low stem density grasses uh, that are happening in bunches. Milo is a good crop to kind of grow in, in heavier densities. You need a, a low enough stem density, in my opinion, that you're getting good airflow. Right. So if I'm going out and I find a big batch of fescue and I dizzy the crap out of the bird and I shove it up under that and it's matted. And now there's no way for the thing to even escape. Even if my dog does find it, that bird can't leave even if it wants to. And it's important for that bird to be able to get out of there and escape it. I don't want to go pick it up and throw it. And I don't want to have to get my foot under it and, and fly it into the air. I want that bird to, to feel the pressure when we arrive and to leave because of us. And, and, uh, and, and in so doing, they've got to be able to get out of the cover. So you have to have low enough stem density. I'm thinking uh, I, stuff like you know, broom sedge, um, native warm season grasses, uh, in the Southeast, uh, blue stem, things like that. Uh, you know, that's the stuff we think about right off the bat. And I'm not a biologist. Uh, embarrassingly, I can't even you know, begin to tell you, but what I can tell you is like patches of weeds that tend to have a little more woody type stem, um, in interspersed with your, your kind of grasses out there. Those are good places to stick those edges, you know, so field edges and things like they're going to, you know, your dog's not going to be burying themselves into deep into cover to make contact with a bird that, that is also buried deep in cover. Um, so 
you know, we want the dog to have access to that odor and we want that bird to have an escape route. That's what's important. If you can find a way to plant those, that's a good thing to do with your loose birds and planting. Um, so when I say I don't want to dizzy them to death, like I don't, like I'm going to give them a few spins with just my wrist. I don't do the big arm thing, you know, windmill 20 or 30 times until the bird's head's just laid over and he can't think anymore. Uh, I'm going to just spin them around a couple of times in my hand, um, just to, enough to disorient them. And I'm going to kind of sidearm them into cover, you know, not, I'm not going to fastball him at the ground and I'm not going to like toss him. So he just flies away when I give him a pitch. I'm just going to make sure he gets into cover. Hopefully he's disoriented enough to stay put for a little while, but also alert enough to kind of get up and get comfortable and be alive and alert and awake and oriented when we show up and and ready to get out of town uh, when he needs to. So that when I think of bird planting, that's what I'm doing. And when I teach my handlers that come in here, my clients that are coming to pick their dogs up, like, Hey, there's, when you're going out to the preserve, number one, I hope you're going to the preserve to get some dog work in. You're going with your dog in mind. It's not to go kill a pile of, you know, pin raised birds that you're, you're paying eight times as much as you could pay for chicken at the grocery store. You're not doing it to put meat on the table. You're going out there to enjoy a day of field. So like you need to not be planting piles and piles of birds in really small fields. You know, it, it, I would say like a bird an acre, uh, but really it would be better like a bird every three to five. So if I got a 10, 10 acre field, um, three birds in there is, is plenty. That's going to give my dog's going to have to work to find them when he does find them. If he's chasing one, he's not as likely to just bump into another one. Right. So you've heard me in the past kind of discuss a dog becoming bird drunk. If I go into a 10 acre field and I plant 40 birds in that field, that dog can't even go anywhere without bumping into a bird. And if he's uh, a young, enthusiastic dog or she, I can expect them to kind of come unglued. And that's not what I want because it doesn't give me an opportunity to reset, regain control between setups. So look at each individual contact as an opportunity for that dog to learn something. And so hopefully if those birds are planted well and the right type of cover, and the right type of cover is also like, we don't even have it here this time of year. I'm not going to see it until after at least a couple of good frosts in this area. So I'm, I'm, I'm already training at a disadvantage when I'm training early season. Um, it's not wet. I don't like, you know, wet green cover is not going to allow for good airflow. It's going to make your bird wet, which is going to compromise your bird's ability to get out of town. And, uh, and it's also just going to be dense for the most part down here. So we're waiting, you know, all of us with bated breath for that first and second, you know, good hard frost of the year to knock some of that cover down and, uh, and hoping for good, cold, dry weather, good training weather is good hunting weather. It's it, that's the time that the birds are the most accessible to us and the dogs. And so recognize that if you're out training in the summertime, good luck. And hopefully you're not where I live. If you get out of town, out of this area, you know, by, you know, about an hour south, you end up in the Sand Hills in North Carolina. And that I think that's a better training venue. And this time of year, you get um, 
you know, less fescue, less Johnson grass, less of these, you know, high stem density grasses, more of the native looking stuff, weedy stuff, lower stem densities, stuff just doesn't grow well in that sandy soil. So it, it actually is helpful to us. So if you've got those kind of areas where you've got kind of lower, lower stem densities this time of year, drier conditions, that's, that, you know, that's what you're looking for. We don't want dry because it's hard to smell, right? But if it's super duper humid and it's green and thick vegetation, um, then it's just, it's tough for all things to, to fire on all cylinders. And when I say humid, I really, what I'm really getting at is wet cover. Um, here, you know, we've got to do on the morning and I can expect it to be on that grass at lunchtime if, if it's really heavy, high, thick grass, and it's not just a hot, dry day. So to bear that in mind. Um, so, you know, and another thing, man, when I talked about that, I set that bird and it goes and there goes my cha-ching, my four bucks is gone or my five bucks is gone, depending on the time of year. Um, that's a, like, that's kind of a, 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 expected sacrifice every once in a while I'm going to plant cause I'm planting birds so lightly I'm going to show up and there's just not going to be a bird there. And I just got to go, Oh, well, that's the cost of doing business. That's the cost of training dogs. And and it helps to ad- adopt that kind of outlook, right? Cause if you're going and you're like, I can't afford to lose that four bucks, then just go wait to wild bird season like, and just go stomp around and do your best. Cause uh, it's going to take co- good, strong contacts with good, strong pin raised birds to get your dog understanding, at least to be comfortable. Now, if you come back and you do what I call hard breaking your dog on pin raised birds, you know, to the point where you've got a bird in cover and it doesn't matter if it can fly or not, your dog's not going to take a step. That's, that's fine. That's, I'm aiming at getting there too, but I don't want to take my young dog that I'm developing and, and make them afraid of advancing on that bird. I want them to not to choose not to advance on that bird because that bird's going to leave, not because they're going to get hurt. And, and that kind of goes into if we're swapping to wild birds, if I've got a dog that's only ever known preserve hunting and it is hard broke, then I can expect to see a lot of unproductives. He's going to stop on first odor anywhere and he's not going to move. It's hard to teach re- relocation work and it's certainly not, you're not going to expect to see dogs that self-relocate in a confident fashion on pin raised birds. Those birds are not going to move around on the ground in a way that's going to promote good relocation work, good bird work on the ground, if that makes sense. Wild birds will do that. They're going to run around all over the ground and they're still not going to get caught and they're going to be sneaky about it and they're going to make the dogs have to learn how to trail. Um, so I'm thinking specifically of like grouse and pheasant with this, a good grouse dog knows how to pin a grouse, knows how to keep them from running and knows how to keep them on the ground. A good pheasant dog does the same with pheasant. Each individual wild bird species is going to teach the dog how to handle it. Pin raised birds don't do that. And, and so if you're making that pin raised bird dog and you know, you're going to get them hard broke, it would behoove you to get out in the interim as you're training in that way and expose this dog to wild birds and hide that transmitter from yourself. Don't get out there and start imposing rules that you, you know, that you would expect to see your dog follow in, in preserve scenarios on wild birds. Let those, you've got this opportunity. 
let those wild birds be the teacher. If you've got the opportunity to get, expose these dogs to it while you get a chance, when you get off that preserve, you don't have to hold, you don't have to hold your dog to the same standard. Let the birds do it. Let them sort it out. That's the, that's the benefit of being there, you know, and, and you might see a few fly away because you know, those pen raised birds are going to tolerate a heck of a lot more pressure than your wild birds. So their odds are your dog's going to crowd them the first few times he works them, but he'll learn when those birds leave, they'll teach them. Um, you know, don't, don't get out there and, and get happy on with the trigger finger on that e-collar because you're, you know, you're missing opportunities on wild birds. You'll get many, many more in the future if you give your dog an opportunity to work it out. So, you know, I've kind of, hopefully I, I got everything in a, in a somewhat coherent way out of my mouth there. Um, I haven't touched on flushing dogs yet. And for me personally, you know, and this is probably sacrilege to some of the real flushing dog pros out there. And I'm thinking like your spaniel trial guys. Um, I don't see, you know, for me, I kick around with my lab out there. She flushes in front of my pointers. Uh, if she catches birds on the ground, good on her, man. Like that meant that bird wasn't smart enough to get out of town. Uh, I'm not thinking of steadiness with her, you know, and, and it, just like a pointing dog, like if you're out hunting wild birds, the reason we, I think it's really important to have steadiness on a pointing dog in a preserve environment is because those birds are poor flyers. And especially if you're out hunting with other parties, um, you're going to get low flyers, you're going to get short flyers, and they're going to present really dangerous shot opportunities with your dog on the ground. And so a steady dog in that scenario is a much safer dog. And the same in a preserve setting would hold true for a flushing dog. So steadiness for that reason is very important. If what you're trying to do is go out and have a fun day of field on wild birds, then I would say steadiness is much less of a, of a uh, consideration. It's, it's much less important to me in that scenario. So I do it because it's what I do for a living. I've got the time, the means, the, the space and the birds to work on those things. But if what you really want to do is go hunt and have fun and you can appreciate your dog, even if they're not perfectly steady, then I would say have added on wild birds, always still be careful. There's always a chance your dog's going to, uh, get in the way and the bird might present a, a, a kind of an odd, unsafe shot at times, but much, much less likely in, in, on wild birds than it is on preserve or pen raised birds. So, um, as far as flushing dogs are concerned and because I mostly I'm, when I think of that, I'm talking about my lab and a very practical sense of hunting. She's going to have been through a basic retriever yeah, or my, my lab before I'm doing a lot of hunting with it will have been through a basic retriever program. It's going to have a high level of obedience. It's going to understand competing motivators. It's going to be able to handle a little bit of pressure when it's in drive. And so keeping it in range, keeping it from chasing willy nilly all day, those aren't going to be too hard because I've done a lot of work putting a, a, a really uh, high level of handle on a dog. So getting out there and just letting her know as long as she's, you know, might let her chase once or twice to keep her drive high. Um, as long as she's not catching, she's going to be plenty willing to get back to me, um, you know, between birds and, and stay in range or, or if she starts getting a, you know, trailing a pheasant, if I go to the preserve and we got pheasants on the ground and my lab starts trailing one and she's getting a little far away from me, I hit her with a whistle sit toot. She stops. 
I get back in range and I send her on again and she starts trailing again. And we'll just do that until we get to that bird. And they'll tend, usually those birds, once they get to a place where they run out of cover, they're going to either pin up or get gone. And on the preserve, they're usually going to sit a little tighter than they would in the wild where you get out and you fart too loud and all the birds on the far side of the field get up, you know? So, um, so just something to be aware of. I, I love, you know, if, if it's just kick around hunting, I'm, I'm happy to do it with my lab, you know, and, and it's a lot of fun. Now I, it's not like watching pointing dogs in the field. You're, you're losing something to some degree. Um, you know, but if, yeah, if you're, if you're starting with a dog, that's got a pretty solid level of handle on it, has a desire to get after birds, um, and can put them in the air for you. You've got a competent upland dog and what that dog needs is exposure and pin raised birds are a great opportunity to expose your, expose your flushing dog to, to game. And it's going to translate pretty well to wild birds because there's, there's not too much technical going on there. You know, I, I want to see a hard flush. My dog has a soft flush. Um, catching a few pin raised birds on the ground is, and what I've seen anecdotally strengthens her flush a little bit. So if I'm happy to go out there and let her have that practice. And if that bird's a little slow and she gets a handle on it, even, you know, a lot of times she'll snag them out of the air. Um, you know, she's going to flush a little harder the next time. Cause she's a little more, uh, you know, aroused if that makes sense. So, You know, that I, I, we could probably go much in much more detail on flushing dogs. And I think we will in the future. We've, uh, discussed maybe having just kind of a topic on, you know, your, your, your waterfowl dog in the uplands, if you will. So I think we'll, we'll run a podcast on that in the future. Um, you know, somebody that's never really built a, I've had some good Spaniels. I've had a couple of good Cockers in my time. I've had some really nice Boykins through here, but I don't consider myself like a Spaniel pro. So I just don't want to talk on it. I don't want to step out of line too far on that. I'm sure there's all sorts of nuance in, you know, having good flying birds or catching birds on the ground in regards to keeping, you know, working towards steadiness. But if, as long as you can strike a balance with a pointing dog and you've done that, it's not too hard to do with a flushing dog. Um, you know, just don't hammer them at the wrong time. Don't make ill-timed corrections. You know, I, I always err on the side of caution when I'm thinking of steadiness and I'm not going to, I, whatever I do, I need to protect my dog's drive. So just keep that in mind, you know, in both, regardless of whether you're hunting a pointer or a flusher. Um, I was going to just wrap up on, and I kind of talked to taking your preserve dog, wild bird hunting. But if you do, there's a few guys and it happens the opposite way too. You know, you've got a dog and you've been up in Michigan for six years of this dog's life and your job sends you down to North Carolina. And now you're, you know, outside of Woodcock, your only option or is getting out to the preserve. Uh, you're, there's going to be a learning curve for your dog and he's going to find out probably that, Hey, I can pick this bird up off the ground. It's not going anywhere. And so you're going to have to deal with that. And, uh, um, you, we can see things, you know, a myriad of problems. If all we have is a great wild bird dog and we come into a preserve scenario from, Hey, this is a grouse dog. And if he smells something and it smells strong, you can't get him to move a muscle and you got a, you know, a pin raised Bob white 
somewhere probably 50 or 60 yards ahead of you just sitting on the ground and that dog's like man there's so much odor saturation over here <clears throat> over here i'm not moving a muscle <clears throat> but there you can't get that bird in the air you can't find them so that could that could be one and that's probably a really good problem to have you know if you got a dog that honest and it never wants to to unravel that's great but odds are given enough opportunities they are going to unravel they're going to realize that these birds are stupid and they're just not going to not going to escape the way wild birds do and they're going to probably start ripping them and catching them and doing all those things and you're going to have to turn that dog into a preserved dog if you want to continue to do it at you know and successfully so that's it that's all i've got on that today hopefully hopefully i touched on things people were wanting to hear um and it wasn't just complete uh you know stumbling over my words like you hear me doing right now um, you know, again, guys, something I'm, I'm looking at taking a little more seriously going forward, definitely considering monetizing this in some form or fashion, um, and, and looking for, you know, other revenue streams that don't involve my shoulder. So, uh, if you like it, please let people know, please leave me a review and, uh, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Take care. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.